This is History Replays Today, the Richmond History Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. My name is Jeff Major. I hope you are having a fantastic day wherever you're listening to this. This is episode 52. And if you're the kind of person that generally fast forwards through my introduction here, goes straight to the conversation part of the show, just hold on. Just wait. I do have a pretty good, pretty big announcement that's coming up about the show. Um, but uh, on this show, on this episode here, I do have uh, Mike Gorman, who I'm going to go ahead and call a friend of the show. He's a historian uh, with the Richmond National Battlefield Parks. If you haven't heard his previous episodes, go back and check them out. Um, Lincoln and Richmond, the fall of Richmond. Uh, we've recorded them out of order, but you could probably put them all together and make a pretty amazing narrative. Um, you know, even just Civil War life in Richmond, just the general day-to-day life. That was a pretty amazing episode as well. Um, but here we're going to talk about uh, Reconstruction in Richmond, in particular at Chimborazo, which was is now a park, uh, was uh, one of the largest hospitals in the world during the Civil War, and, uh, and one of the major sites of the, the Freedmen's Bureau in Richmond during, during Reconstruction. Uh, I do hope to have a lot more uh, about Reconstruction coming up here in the near future, uh, but for now we're just focusing on Chimborazo. Uh, the, the, the sound at the beginning of the conversation is a bit strange, a little bit muffled, uh, but it does get fixed, and Mike is always interesting enough to muscle through, so I'm sure you will. Um, but uh, as far as the announcement, um, close followers to the podcast will know that I actually missed the posting on the the, the 15th uh, when the last episode should have been out. And um, that being said, it's just too busy. And frankly, I just need a break here. I, I've just got behind. Got a new job. Got all kinds of family things going on. So um, I'm going to take a break. Uh, I'm going to be back at the beginning of uh, 2016, um, trying to catch up. Uh, get ahead of myself so that I can bring keep bringing uh, quality shows um, that hopefully you're still enjoying. I just know that being behind already, coming up with the holidays and whatnot, trying to coordinate, it's just not going to work out. So um, I will be back at the beginning of 2016, but I'm just going to take a, a quick break. Um, just need just need a little time here. Um, but let me know what you think. Um, as always, Facebook, Tumblr at History Replays on Twitter. Um, I haven't been able to update them much lately either, but I'm hoping to get back on that. Um, but I also, you know, I, I also want to thank Patricia, um, especially Patricia uh, and Hank, uh, who've made donations to the podcast. Uh, it was it was a little bit ago, um, but I because uh, uh, it doesn't matter why. Um, I just lost track of that as well, just a whole bunch of stuff. But I'm trying to get myself back together here. Um, and on top of the top of things, but um, but you can you can donate as well at historyreplaystoday.org and uh, and again do that bring the show back uh, at the beginning of the year it's going to be fantastic. Um, but the future aside, let's get into this episode. Uh, we just got finished celebrating the 150th anniversary of the Civil War. Uh, a lot of times people forget about the fact that that, that there are things that happened after that. In particular, um, Reconstruction was pretty massive. Right, so um, we're going through the 150th reconstruction right now. So um, uh, Mike has done a ton of research uh, recently about Richmond and Chimborazo in particular um, during Reconstruction, and a lot of it is uh, due to a new batch of documents um, that an or- a Mormon organization has posted online uh, recently, and uh, and that's that's where we're going to start the conversation. FamilySearch.org, I think, uh, that they that they run, and it's, it's a genealogical website. You probably know the Mormon Church is, is very involved in, in genealogy, and they uh, just, I guess it was earlier this year, it was the early part of 2015, uh, digitized and put up all of the records of the Freedmen's Bureau, and then announced a, a project to uh, sort of crowdsource going through and finding the finding the names of the former slaves in there. 
and you know that's a good project. I I, that, I really wish them all the all the success. But what I found most interesting were the records themselves. Uh, there they all are. I mean, all of them. And wow, all of a sudden now you've got this on the ground, you know, bottom up view. You know what was actually taking place during Reconstruction here in. in well, I was most interested in Richmond, obviously, but you know, you can, wherever the Freedmen's Bureau operated, the records are up. You know, that, that's that, that's just staggering. So I, I of course, plowed into the to the Richmond uh, records, and it, it's just this amazing pile of um, you know, practical action. What do you do? We've got a huge displaced population of former slaves and white people. That uh, what do you do? At one point, uh, the commander here in Richmond said they were. Approaching 35,000 former slaves in the city in 1865. Now consider that in 1860, before the war, there were in the neighborhood of 38,000 all souls in Richmond. And here's Halleck in 1865 saying, "We've got 35,000 former slaves alone." Wow. What do you do? You know, how do you get them a job? What do you have? The crops in the ground. How are, how are we going to deal with this? You know, these people need food, they need shelter, they need clothes, they need everything that you would need. And now, of course, slavery no longer exists, so what do you do? And we can all look back at, at the Freedmen's Bureau writ large and, and point out, yes, it became corrupt, yes, it was, it was you know, very political, yes, all this stuff. But on the ground, when you're talking about these lieutenants and captains that are trying to make this thing run, what do you do? And um, it's just fascinating. And I guess going to that point, that it is a military operation, effectively, right? It was run, it was run by military officers, that's right. So, I guess, first of all, I think the records are probably pretty amazing then, right? Well, it would be, it would be wrong to say it was run by the military as if there were um, scores of troops that they commanded. For instance, um, the guy who was most involved here uh, at Freedomsboro was a guy named H.S. Merrill, and he was a first lieutenant. Uh, they're constantly... Uh, back and forth between him and the military authorities in Richmond, where you know the guy he's addressing is a colonel. So you see that you know he doesn't have real military power here, but uh, that it was administered by um, by military officers is probably the best way to to put that. Okay. Uh, but it, you know, did he have a sergeant and a first sergeant and a crowd of soldiers that he could command? No, no. So it's 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 very much a, a bureau of the government that's that's administered on the ground by. By military officers. That said, you're right. I mean, the the, the record keeping is fantastic. They did a they did a monthly sort of uh, uh, summation of race relations, and it, they're great. Uh, it's really neat to see what they what they write. Um, and they seem the officers really seem to be true believers. When you when you read what they wrote, um, like I said, you can say whatever you want about the the Freedmen's Bureau, you know, on a macro level, but on a, on the micro level. I mean, you can you can almost hear these guys pouring out their sympathies in in these summations, and you know, really addressing a practical problem. You're you're seeing these people daily. You're having to interact with them. You know, they need food. They're starving and they're unclothed. I mean, you really get a sense that these are these are your true believers. Right. And are they? Um, a, 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 I mean, the the whole bureau is started before Appomattox. Right, yes. it's about a month before, Pre right? It, it predates the end, the end of the the war. And so this is Lincoln's Lincoln's doing, yes. right? Yes, and that's a good point too. Is, is that uh, this is not a uh, radical Republican animal? That this was this is this is started by by Lincoln, and as you know, it's the Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, and Abandoned Land. So right, their their ideal goal was to handle the very practical problems of of what happens to the civilian population and the property of the, of the civilians after war. And of course that's going to take on a, a special dimension once you've got you know, hundreds of thousands of, I mean just in Virginia, yeah. uh, former slaves. You know, now what? What do we do? Right. But now, so, And that's really where I think the story is, is I mean, like I, I, I said earlier, historians are lazy and, and we put on our blinders. 1861, and 1865 being those blinders, and uh, it's very easy to just focus on the war. Right? As soon as the shooting stops, Appomattox happens. Right? Happy ending. Right? Mm -hmm. Yay! Music swells, fade to black. Okay, right. That's your fairy tale. Now let's let's talk Turkey. You know what does this really do? Right. After every war, 
whether it's Vietnam, whether it's World War Two, whether it's well now Syria mm-hmm. with all the with all the refugees, what do you do? What practical steps are you going to take? Sure. And that's a question that you know we're always going to answer. And are folks uh, like uh, former enslaved people coming to Richmond, or would they be more fleeing? You know, once because uh, because we've come to I guess the. Uh, I guess the last time you and I sat in this room, we were talking about the burning of Richmond. And so there's this cataclysmic event, right? I mean, it, are they moths or whatever goes away from light? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. What, <laughs> I, I start, wow. Yeah, started that without a, without an ending. But no, <laughs> I know what you what you're asking. Uh, no, the, that is a really good good question. I think the easy answer is certainly the 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 form well the, the slaves that were in Richmond when Richmond fell a lot of them probably stayed uh, we know that happened I mean for instance when Lincoln came to town you know, he was absolutely mobbed by these by these people um, who saw this as their emancipation event I mean, and mm-hmm. probably correctly emotionally surely I would uh, but you've also got people coming to the city attracted by the army itself. They mm-hmm. know they're going to be protected there. They know there will be an apparatus for rations. For there's going to be something there when we get there. You know that's mm-hmm. the that's the rationale. So there's there is a push pull dynamic going on here. Uh, you know a lot of the, the people that came in, you can read in the records that said, you know, my old master kicked me off the farm. You know, you sort of imagine this um, scenario where, you know, okay, you know, you're you're not a slave anymore. Go away. You know, I'm not I'm not going to feed huh. you anymore. I'm not going to clothe you anymore. Okay, now what? Right? Everybody's having to ask this question. It's not, it's not just the, the you know, white government. It's, it's everyone. Now, what do I do? I've got four kids. What do we do? Uh, you know, when I get there, is my marriage going to be recognized? You know, what, what do we do? Sure. And so, like I said, there's that very much that push-pull. You know, slavery's over. Now what? Well, if you're casting about trying to answer that question, um, go to where the Army is. Right. Sure. And that, that's right here in Richmond. You know, this is the... This is the big kahuna. This is the, the headquarters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that's what that's what they did. Um, and I guess that the plantation and outside. I mean, I guess it goes here. Um, at Chimborazo becomes a comes into action. But I think one of the really interesting parts oh, yes. of the um, statement or the name of the place is which I, until you know reading up on it, I had the, the official name, but the abandoned land right. makes the. Um, because in my mind is having not looked too much into it before, previously, Freedmen's Bureau is like this sort of saintly organization. And then suddenly you're like, oh, but you put abandoned land on there too, which is like, you know, we need to, A, you're, you're lumping these, this former property in with other property. Um, but it's also, you know, we need to get our business, you know. That, well, that's certainly, that is part of it. What is interesting, if you look at the records, is how little of that they actually did. <laughs> um, although it's, it's certainly part of their, their charge. Uh, you, right away, you have them you know, inventorying uh, abandoned Confederate property, uh, abandoned uh, houses by you know, Confederate officers. Uh, I don't know if they sold that or, or what, but this becomes an issue, a big issue in the Deep South. I mean, what do you do with this? Uh, plantation, and of course, this leads to the the question of: Are you going to parcel it out to the former slaves? Is this is this you know what government policy is going to be? And eventually, the answer is, of course, no. But you know that's very much up in the air at this time. You know, the, we're talking the months and, and year after this. Well, yeah, that's still a question that has to be answered. And in the case of uh, here in Richmond, uh, the answer to what do you do is to take over the abandoned Confederate hospital up here at Chimborazo. And that's how Chimborazo sort of enters the scene. Mm-hmm. And the and before I guess before we even go to that, I, sure. uh, the thing I've always seen the only landmark I know of the um, is the uh, there's a sign behind the Capitol that talks about the oh, Freedmen's, Freedmen's, the Freedmen's Bank. Isn't that, isn't that what it talks about? I think so. Yeah. yeah. Um, right you, there, you, right there at the corner of Ninth and Broad was well, interestingly had been the Provost Marshal's office during the during the Confederate years. Is where you had to go to get your pass, you know, to go somewhere. Martial law essentially was administered through there. Then when Richmond is occupied, that becomes the, the later, the headquarters for the Freedmen's Bureau. And uh, that's where you would go, you know, to 
you needed a lawyer or you know something was going wrong and you needed some kind of help, that's where you would go. Uh, that's where you went to have your, your marriage recognized. That's where the courts were. Uh, all right there. Right. Right there at Ninth and Broad. And so, do you know of any other marker? The Reconstruction and all? A freedman? Gosh. Not that I can think of. Okay. I was trying to think of one last night. I think that's the only one I could come up with, but... Like, um, like we were talking about, I mean, Reconstruction, just for a lot of historians, is just sort of that get through it in school. You know, you into the Civil War, that was exciting. Now, now moving on, let's get to the Gilded Age. Um, but more historians, I think, are taking a closer look. Um, certainly been reevaluated, you know, with several important works lately. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm a big fan, huge fan, of primary sources. You know, I, I, it's not that I don't care what historians write. I, I do care. Uh, but I'd rather look at the sources myself and, you know, look at, get the vibe from, from the, on the ground. What were they dealing with? What did they have to have to contend with? And I'm not I'm not discounting the the impact of larger political forces, but when you're when you're really looking at it from an everyday on the ground scenario, it's it's it, it gives you a real flavor for things. And the, you know the problems that the the free people have, you know, it's not like slavery is like a light switch. You turn it off and done. Right? Mm-hmm. What, what do you do? I mean, the Freedom Bureau now has to try to get them a job. Um, what kind of jobs are we talking about? You know, we're talking about maybe domestic help. We're talking about uh, farm hands. I, I always sort of wonder, you know, how did this how did this actually work? And I fully confess, I, I am out on a limb here. You know, let's talk about the Civil War. I'm an expert. We'll, we'll do that. I don't. I'm wading into this for the first time, and I, I think that's really the exciting part. Is this is this is completely virgin territory to me. And one of the things that struck me was, you see this word pop up over and over again. And remember, this is written in longhand, so you'd see it in cursive, and I couldn't really figure out what it was saying. And it said, you know, we got 20 men there in dentures this week. An indenture. Well, if you know the early history of, the, of, the, of America, you know, one mm-hmm. of the things that would happen would, you know, somebody from, say, you know, Wales would indenture themselves. You're, you're essentially owned by you know, someone else, and you would, you would agree to work for a set terms. You know, I'll work for you for four years, and you clothe me, and you house me, and... and That'll be the way it works. So apparently, and I don't, again, that just having that word there makes me go, what? You know, what did that really mean? Was it basically slavery under another term? I don't know. I really don't know. Right. But, it, you know, it, it's that now all of a sudden you're peeking inside the room and, whoa, what's going on here? Uh, this is really fascinating stuff to, to get into. Uh, so all those, all those interesting tantalizing glimpses of, you know, practical solution. I don't know. There is actually a really fascinating book, the... Uh... Slavery by Another Name. Mm-hmm. That, I don't know if you've read that. I know of it. I haven't yeah, read it. It's a really interesting book. And, um, but anyways. Uh, like so, I say, I mean, I, I, I could tell you all the esoteric terms from the Civil War. You know, maybe it doesn't mean anything other than just a contract. But, uh, you know, those kind of things just make you go, whoa, you know, how did this really work? And maybe that was how it worked, you know. So. Well, in looking at slavery uh, in general, like throughout the history of the institution, it is fascinating how um, the how creative names become to justify and to make things not seem as bad. Um, so, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if that was, you know, had something, you know, that it seemed, you know, old things generally seem better somehow. I'm, I'm sure there are historians of Reconstruction out there that would answer this in a heartbeat. But, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, like I say, it's just, it's... A, one of the fun fun things about this is you know just having the digital sources. I know nothing, and walking into this and let them let them talk to me, and that's that's what is really rocked the way we look at reconstruction. At least I I look at reconstruction here in Richmond, right. and also the way we look at, at this site at Chimborazo. I mean, it's completely completely changed how we view this. And so and so this is Chimborazo becomes somewhat of the the center or the headquarters for. Well, it's not the it's not the headquarters, but but the, the practical problem is 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 obvious. You've got thousands of people that need a house, that need mm-hmm. shelter, and so basically the the former hospital buildings up here at, at Chimborazo, well, they'd gone through a variety of uses. At, at first, when the unit came in, they used it as a hospital, and then it became kind of a way station for exchanged prisoners, and then it was just vacant. So. Uh, Halleck responding to this, Henry Halleck, the general who's in charge here, responding to this very real problem uh, of 
35, he said, 35,000 uh, former slaves crowding into Richmond. Okay, well, we got to get them jobs, but we've also got to get them sheltered. Um, it's a no-brainer. Right. Chimborazo. Um, the military authorities were out at Winder Hospital. They called that Camp Grant. The almshouse was uh, crowded with white people, so it seems like the, it was like the solution to, you know, let's not have blacks and whites in the almshouse, which is still there, as you know, north of Shaco Cemetery. But, okay, let's really define this. Almshouse for whites, Chimborazo for blacks. Mm-hmm. And so, just like that, uh, you, you suddenly have them, the Freedmen's Bureau administering this this site, This uh, they're handing out rations, they're, they're handing out clothes, and now these people have shelter. So this is not a, a long-term solution by any means, but now all of a sudden you've got this massive, and when we say massive, I'm talking thousands, literally thousands of uh, former slaves taking over this site, and it becomes its its own refugee camp. I mean, there's right. really no other word for it. That's what we're talking about. So, but are they um, organically taking it, or is someone saying, hey, guess what, there's some spots up there, you should go check those out? You know, that, someone, I guess someone in charge. Yeah, that is something that I am pretty interested in, as far, you know, how did this happen? Um, it seems that some former slaves had already moved in, but that the, the problem with the almshouse was, it was just, it was completely bursting at the seams. So, Freedmen's Bureau, you take care of this, and they do. And come in and basically say, okay, all the blacks from the almshouse come to Chimborazo and all the whites stay there. And when that happens, it becomes its own sort of, I don't want to say beacon, but uh, certainly a magnet. So that, that now these former slaves in Richmond know where to go. Right. Come come here. And there'll be an apparatus for for that. And they did work to try to get them jobs. I mean, you can you can also you know read in the newspapers, you know, these stinging critiques of you know, these as, as if slavery was, was oh, now it's over, they should be able to work. Uh, you know, uh, well, where are the jobs, right? You've got 35,000, that's by Halleck's estimate, 35,000 former slaves in a town that no longer has slavery that doesn't have a whole lot of wealth now because Confederate currency is valueless. Now what, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, finding them jobs wasn't as easy as you'd think. And that's where that indentures word comes up over and over again. You know, maybe it was... Uh, instead of a wage, I will clothe you, I will house you, I will feed you. But, you know, I don't know. But now Chimborazo becomes kind of a, like I say, a refugee camp for people, you know, constantly moving in and out. It's not a, you know, you're going to stay here for, for years and years, you know, but this this constant flux going on. And the, the Freedmen's Bureau seemed to uh, pay particular attention to getting them out of the city. They were offering transportation to Baltimore. They were trying to get... Um, get them jobs in the county, as they said. I, I assume that means Henrico, uh, probably on a farm somewhere. You know, when you've been, you know, a slave has been all his life at a, at a plantation and the master now says, okay, slavery's over, go away, you know, can't go back there. So who's going to vouch for you? You know, you got all these real problems. Right. So, you know, I, I thought it was pretty interesting too, seeing how many were, they were literally shipping them north. And I imagine that, that carried some interesting problems you know what did they imagine when they were going up to baltimore when they were going up to philadelphia uh was this you know their, their thing the streets paved with gold you know i wonder how welcome they were there but sure. here here at chimborazo now you just got this massive concentration of former slaves run by the freedmen's bureau um and it i mean it's a refugee camp it, it's it takes on that character and and it, with everything that you can imagine you know it, it's not clean it's dangerous Right, sickness is sweeping through, you know, all these problems, and they have to be dealt with as well. It's not an easy task. Right, and so, I mean, we're we can do this prequel we've already talked about with sure. of, uh, of actually about the the hospital when it was here, yeah. but it seems like a pretty awesome place to be set up. I mean, they had farms, you know, uh, at least in oh, the hospital itself. Yeah, I mean, on the grounds, right? I mean, I'm not here. No, they they rented them. They were somewhere else. Oh, they did. Yes. Okay, I thought there were some kind of uh, at least gardens around or something, right? They rented some. Um, it's interesting because in, in some of the morning reports that you'll see it, it'll say "guard at the vegetable garden," and it'll be like four guys. Okay, so <laughs> when you picture a vegetable garden, you know you're thinking of you know your your garden plot in your backyard. This must have been a sure. gargantuan thing, you know, that that required a guard of four. Uh, so, you know, whatever it was and wherever it was, one of them said Morris Farm, <laughs> that helps. Uh, 
wherever it was, must have been very large. And, right. And we know they were pasturing uh, goats and cattle and, and getting the meat from there. Um, and Chimborazo, when it was used as a hospital, was running in the black. They, they were making money for the, I mean, I challenge anybody else to, to find an example of, you know, uh, wonderful fiscal history of the, the Confederacy. It, it's hard to do. Uh, financial you know, efficiency is, is not something you associate with the, with the Confederacy, but, but this place was making money in, in the form of uh, you know, the cattle and vegetables that they were able to sell back to the market and make, make money that way. So they were doing quite well, and, and it is noted for, uh, even during the war, for its, its low mortality rate and, and efficiency. It, it, it earned all that. But you know, when, the, when the war's over, you don't need a 5,000-bed hospital today, right? Right. So it becomes what it is. So is it just pretty much rooms? Because I mean, these were basically shacks. You want to think right? of these like if you've ever been in a in a military barracks, like a long, you know, with a like a instead of a squad bay, like you might associate with the military, they'd have a partition running right down the middle. So it'd be two long rooms, and in those rooms, which would you know maybe be about ten feet wide or eleven feet wide, you'd have beds on either side, and uh, that's what it would have been. So. Uh, the character of the hospital, I mean, would have looked like a military camp. So when we're talking about Chimborazo, it's, it's you know, roughly a hundred whitewashed wooden buildings, one story, uh, you know, stove in the middle, partitioned down lengthwise, and with all those with all those beds. And if you want to learn about the hospital, I mean, there's, there's so much about the hospital. But in particular, if you ever get a chance, read uh, Phoebe Pember. Uh, it's called A Southern Woman's Story, is her book. And it is just fantastic. She mm-hmm. was one of the matrons here at Chimborazo. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, I wish she'd written 200 more pages. I mean, you fly through it, but uh, she really gives a on-the-ground look at what it was like to be to be here as well. Uh, when you when you encounter it in, in patients' letters, they're, I mean, not shouldn't really surprise us, but they hate the place. Um you know, not too many people have nice. When you go to the hospital, you're not gonna be like, "Oh, that was amazing! I love that place." You know, I want to go back there. Uh, they hate that they're there. They hate that you know they think they should now be showered with, um, you know, feminine attention and uh, pies and you know all kinds of goodies, and they're not. And uh, you know, instead of the, the the lovely ladies of the the family that took them in, which they might have expected, uh, now you're getting you know the slave is bringing you food. You know what? You know that's. So it's it's sort of the problem of perception. If you're on the ground, if you're if you're one of the patients, you probably hated it. But you know, this really the numbers don't lie. Sure. Uh, Seventy six thousand patients treated here, only about five thousand died. It's uh, it's funny how time doesn't change people much. Like men thinking they deserve feminine attention and pot. <laughs> well, funny. particularly then. I mean, it, the, the, <laughs> of course. <laughs> I mean, I think we Duh, all feel like that all the time. We're but, men, uh, my God, yeah. we get fine. Uh, <laughs> But the uh, you know the perception of the, of what a hospital would be before the war was was very um, rooted in that that gender construct. You know that that there there would be a, a family that would take you in, and the ladies in the house would would do their feminine duty and you know nurse you back to health night and day. You know attendance. Uh, so when you when you arrived in this machine, I mean you'd roll up. You would, you know, look at this place. You know this gigantic physical place. That they call a hospital. I mean, this would have offended your your sensibilities on every sure. level, including gender. You know. So, and also, what? Um, how long from when the patients leave are there now? Um, Freedmen here. Uh, let's see. What was the date? Because um, they kind of straggle out as far as the hospital bit, right? I mean, there's there are some still some folks that are here. We know. Yes. When when the city was evacuated, in fact, Pember has a funny line about this, which is. Uh, uh, which is more funny if you know that she was Jewish. Um, she said that you know the night of the evacuation, her hospital completely emptied. That the the lame could walk, and you know, her her wards just completely emptied overnight. All the miracles, as she said, of the New Testament had been enacted. Right. Uh, that's a great one-liner. But uh, let's see. I think it's roughly three months. Okay. So yeah, the evacuation is in April and in June of 60, uh, 65. Um, the Freedmen's Bureau is, is reporting that there are 200 whites at Camp Chimborazo occupying quarters that are required for the blacks in the almshouse. And this is what he's saying is switch out the, the whites here at Chimborazo for the blacks that are at the almshouse and we'll basically formalize the system. So uh, let's say by June. Right, okay. And so um, 
it's also probably still pretty cruddy. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, like, you know, because yeah, I mean, tens of thousands of men living here in terrible conditions just leave. Right, nobody's, there's no maid that comes by and cleans, or, you know, <laughs> no. I mean, you know, <laughs> no, there was a terrible amputations, uh, I'm assuming that there's at least a pile of, like, like a bloody areas, I don't know, I mean. Not really, I mean, there were amputations, but, you know, the impression that you would get would be, like, if you walked into a hospital today, very clean, uh, very orderly, Okay, you know, it's not, Hollywood's really done a number on Civil War hospitals, all of which is untrue, um, you know, most of the patients here are sick. Not wounded, uh, so it's not like it's this, you know, blood all over the floors. And no, they wouldn't, you know, in the surgery room. Yeah, probably they had to, you know, put down some sawdust or something like that. But but the overall impression would be just just like you see in a hospital today, very very clean and orderly. But you've still got the problem of, you know, two months go by. You know, these these buildings are not built to last. Mm-hmm. Um, they weren't even Pember complained about. You know, the snow would come through the, the slats in the walls and. It wasn't a comfortable place to be, but it was shelter, right? And uh, that's what it, that's what they needed. And so we've got um, a thousands of newly freed enslaved men and women and children. Um, are there is there anything here for them other than a roof and walls or protection? Okay, I mean one of the one of the things that that stands out when you look at these uh, these records is is the the guard is here, you know, that this is a, this is a big deal to protect them from abuse. That's going to break down. Um, but yeah, I mean, you came here for the protection of the army. Here it is. Right. So in addition to the food, the shelter and the prospect of a job, the, the Freedmen's Bureau was constantly trying to get you either a job in Richmond or a job somewhere. But they were actually feeding them here. They weren't yes. saying, okay, all right, fair enough. And, and this is, this is a government, you know, the government pays for it. So, uh, as you can well imagine, what one of the political critiques is going to be, uh, you know, how, how why have we got all these thousands of, you know, indigents just up there drawing rations and doing nothing? Right. Well, do what? You know, you want to scream back at them. Um, you know, it's not like, like I said, it's not like they can just switch off slavery and boom, you get a job as a barber or something like that. It doesn't work. Right. You know, so, you know, the Freedmen's Bureau had, had their money cut, I mean, their work cut out for them. And what about, is there any kind of educating going on? Yes. Absolutely. In fact, uh, uh, quite a few schools were, were operated up here, a day school, a night school, uh, and they they seem to have been for all ages, so you really get, kind of get a sense. I mean, there's the crime of slavery right there. You've got a uh, you know, reading primer class, and there's a three-year-old, and here's a 60-year-old. Absolutely. I, I, mean, I mean, that's that tells you what you want to know right there. I was absolutely uh, thinking of that, and also how hard it would be to learn to read now, and if your child... You know, oh, you mean you, as an adult? Yeah. Oh, yeah, it would be. Like right now, as an adult, like having never had any opportunity, and then your child sitting right next to you, and, you know, you have kids, I got a young kid, and how stupidly fast they pick up on a lot of this stuff, and how dumb as an adult, you know, as an adult, and that kind of feeling would be pretty incredible. I, I, I don't know. It, I, I would imagine, too, the the issue of, uh, you know, I can learn, I, I, I can do this now. I mean, that, that was probably a, Seen as a great opportunity. Sure. Uh, one of the newspapers was called the National Freedman. Uh, admittedly, it's <laughs> it's designed to tell you what a great job the Freedmen's Bureau is doing. Um, so we take that with a grain of salt. But they would have these the, the teachers would write, you know, you know what they were experiencing. And one of the things that struck me was was how hard some of these people were were working. It was clearly a, a hard thing for them to get to school. You know, it wasn't like. Uh, uh, oh, we, we'll put you in school all day, and you know everybody will understand. Hey, look, you still got to put food on the table here. You know, it, it, right? So you'd go do your job, and then you'd come home, and at night, you know, maybe until nine or ten at night, you'd be, you know, studying, learning. Um, and and the, the, there were so many of these people that really, really were taking that seriously. Uh, really shows you, you know, at least for some of them, they saw this as an incredible opportunity, yeah, and to seize it. And so you have you have these people coming from the north. To, to do this, to, to work as teachers. And uh, a couple of the churches, actually, you know, here in town, uh, sponsored those schools. It's very interesting. Uh, and those are probably the best reports, is, is the, the ones that detail, you know, how many students, where they are, what their ages are. Sure. It's really cool. And, you know, these organizations, churches and whatnot, are these all white churches? I mean, all black churches? Or are there white churches helping? Or 
that's a good question. I uh, I've always assumed that they were white. Okay. I, I I could readily imagine that maybe a few did that were black. Certainly not in the South. Uh, there weren't there weren't any uh, in the South that would have been able to do that. But uh, there may have been some black Northern uh, churches that were contributing. I don't know. Right, because I know uh, like the African is at that point somewhat illegally already teaching folks at, at their church. So, but I, but that, that, reach... that's interesting. And, and again, I am not the expert in this, but I, I I've seen the same thing. Um, we know what the laws were, right. but we can also clearly see that you know the people were. I don't want to say they were flaunting it, but they were clearly teaching slaves how to read. And and um, I kind of get the sense that that it's. And again, I'm I'm guessing here, but I kind of get the sense that that was the law that they could use if they if they wanted to or needed to. But you know they're not going to do that unless unless. Uh, uh, you know, it, it was a tool that they, they had in their pocket. You know, if, if something really, they really wanted to screw this guy, we've got that tool, you know. Sure. Um, but, yeah, they were pretty openly doing it at, at First African Baptist. We know Stonewall Jackson did that in Lexington. Um, so I, I get the sense while it was certainly the law, it was also understood that that is fudgeable. Right. <laughs> and I don't know. Uh, yeah. But I certainly do know that, uh, that, I mean, just looking at the numbers here at Chimborazo, uh, speaks for itself right i mean these these people were denied educational opportunities of any stripe and here it is absolutely and and the folks is there any indication where the people here come from the people that stay here and i would really love to know uh for all the the records that have been digitized about these i've never seen like a um roster or a okay you know here's who these people are Here's where they're from. Here's their former master. You know, I, I would just, I'd like, to, I'd like to think that that some of the former workforce at Chimborazo Hospital right. were were among the um, the folks here, but I don't know. I mean, it stands to reason. Sure. But uh, it would be really fascinating to you know to know it and to be able to track it. I mean, you could put pins on a map. Like, where'd they come from? You know. Right. Um, that would be just great. But if those if those records exist, they just haven't been digitized yet. Sure. Sure. Or I haven't gotten to them yet. <laughs> right. <yeah. laughs> Believe me, they're a lot. Well, uh, know everything, dang it. Well, why of course. Why don't you know everybody everything, Everybody expects Mike? us to. Jeez. I know. Um, I'm a park it, ranger, right? I'm, I'm right. supposed to know everything. Well, then, um, how many, what's the what's the population, to the, like, of the Freeman camp? Or, like, in, I mean, is that? In July, uh, the, it was reported that there were 2,571. Okay. That's a lot. Yeah. Um, considering that the, the hospital was considered to have a capacity of just over 3,000 in it during its operation. Okay. Uh, you're, when you're talking about that number, uh, these are not patients now. I mean, that, that's children, that's old folks, that's, you know, uh, everybody you can imagine, that is, a, that is a staggering number. Right. And are, is, it, uh, is there any kind of discrimination as far as, you know, trying to bring in men or just housing women or, you know, like, uh, I mean, or children, or... I haven't really seen that. In fact, in fact, I would say it was more to the opposite. It was more like they tended to favor the aged and the infirm. Okay. Um, uh, if, so if there, was, if, if there was sort of a bias, it would probably be uh, towards, uh, you know, let's say against men. You know, in other words, you, right. you need to go get a job. You need to go right. out right. and you know, do whatever it is you're doing, but, you know, your elderly mother or whatever, you know, she can stay here and your wife and children. Uh, so that's kind of the vibe that you get. Um, but again, again, the, the point is to, to get them out, you know, get them a job, go somewhere. Um, and they got very stingy about who they were issuing meal tickets to. Mm-hmm. Uh, this becomes a big political football. You know, they, they, the, the, course critique being you know you're just handing out free lunches free lunches you know and they actually used that term back back then interesting oh, nice. uh which i found i found very entertaining um you know the soup house that was run here you know is something that you're just you're just doling out for free and uh, of course that has echoes all through the all through history you know, you're on the public dime you know how much do you get uh so it was a big it was a big political football then and uh, eventually they started getting real stingy. You had to prove that you were indigent or sick or you know, had no means of employment. There was nothing you could do uh, for you to, to gain access to the soup house. So, you know, it, it, you start to see that, that, that willingness to, you know, okay, war's over. we got a real practical problem right now. Uh, you know, we're, our arms are open. Come on. You know, we're going to help you. It starts to contract. 
mm-hmm. uh, within within the year, and uh, that's when things really start to, to get bad. Um, in September, uh, the commander at Chimborazo, who uh, his name was, I think, uh, Friday. Yeah, Lieutenant Friday. Yeah, that's not. <laughs> I'm serious. That's actually his name. That's excellent. Uh, he he was relieved because, and I'll, I'll read you the quote from from uh, his superior H. S. Merrill, who himself was only a first lieutenant. But uh, he said the manner in which Camp Chimborazo is conducted is a discredit to to the bureau. It is so much under my charge that I feel responsible for its condition and discipline. My directions and suggestions to Lieutenant Friday of late seem to have been almost entirely disregarded. So. Friday's out, Merrill kind of cleans house, and uh, they did what they could. But remember, you're talking about an increasingly small pile of money to do this with, and uh, you can imagine all the problems. Right. And so I guess that's... Uh, and that's just internally. Wait till you hear what happens externally. <laughs> right. So so I guess that's part of the... Uh, well, I was just thinking, we we're sort of asking questions as if this is a, a stagnant thing that happens one time. But we know that Reconstruction is, at best, doesn't go well. <laughs> well, um, you know, <laughs> I think I think I think there's, it certainly could have gone a different way. That's for sure. Right. So, um, it's kind of like just in the beginning. I mean, just the idea. You know, Lincoln establishes it. He obviously doesn't make it. You know, a month and a half. I think after that, or, or so, a month maybe something in that yeah, ballpark. And, and we'll never know. How Lincoln would have fared sure. in Reconstruction. We'll never know to what degree he would have been, um, you know, a puppet of the left or the right or the radicals. Or, you know, we don't know. We, we will never know. And, you know, what we can only look at is, and so I lose a lot of patience with what was Lincoln's intention. You know, we only get a peek at this, you know, but it doesn't really matter. It's what happened. And so, you know, it's the Johnson administration. Johnson's doing seemingly everything he can to undo everything Abraham Lincoln did. And, of course, the uh, the... Republicans who've been swept into office with the, the 1864 elections, they have the power. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, the Democrats obviously are, are the minority. So you've got you know Republican Congress and a Southern Democrat president in Johnson. I mean, you can just see that this is, there's going to be trouble ahead. But we'll never know, you know how, how it might have gone another way under Lincoln. Right. But so are we seeing budgets grow? Obviously not, right? So, I mean, can you see... Like, are there over the over the time? Because um, what really Reconstruction ends like eighteen seventy, right? Well, um, formally, yeah. When 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 Virginia is readmitted to the Union, right? Right. And so, I mean, is Chimborazo even part of it that yes. long? Okay. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, over that time period, I mean, is it does it seem pretty steady here, or is it? Um, well, um, like we talked about, I mean, you've got the problems. You know, September, you hear about how bad it is. Now, it's, you know, the winter's coming. What are you going to do for food and fuel now? Who you know, who gets you the, the firewood? Right. I mean, who who do you buy it? I mean, what you know? Uh, the Freedmen's Bureau initially didn't think that they needed to. They needed to. Uh, these horror stories start coming out about you know freezing and starvation happening up here. Um, it's still like I say, refugee camp. Um, then you've got the the problems of uh, you know as the winter drags on. Apparently, it's a particularly cold winter. Um, okay, the firewood, which you doled out, you know, into you know, what you thought was enough, it turns out not to be enough. They start, um, as you might guess, you know, if there's a fence over there, pull the fence apart. If there's this bridge over there, pull the bridge apart. Uh, if there's a house there, pull the sidings off the house. Well, you know, the neighbors now are starting to complain. You know, this be this is now becoming, you know, beyond a uh, human issue. This is becoming a, a, a legal issue. You've also got the very real problem of racial violence that's mm-hmm. taking place regularly here and that that cannot be understated you know just going to work apparently you had to kind of run a gauntlet of of kids and other whites throwing rocks and trying to beat you up uh, this is this is documented regularly in the papers uh that this is what they had to endure and then as you might guess it flares up pretty big right and you've got a full-on race riot uh, here in March of 1866, that uh, it's it's a fascinating event, and I, I didn't know anything about it until until I really got in, got into this stuff. But uh, the newspapers reported it, and you know, basically, the, the first story that you get in the newspapers is this uh, this running gunfight uh, around Chimborazo as these uh, 
blacks are firing at the police and the, the whites in the neighborhood involving eventually the guard from Libby Prison, which had to be brought up here on the hill. Uh, and then as they fell back into the, the camp, the whites could hear, uh, you know, fall in, Company A, you know, rally here, as if they had like a, you know, militia battalion. Right. Apparently they had organized essentially for defense, which right. I can't say I'd blame them. Um, <clears throat> but then as it turned out, well, I've never seen a turnaround like this, uh, the way the paper described it, because their first one, like I just sort of narrated to you, is very condemning of what the blacks were doing. You're bad. You, you, of course, they would act like this, right? Sure. You know, that's what we've expected them to do. And as the details start to emerge, the paper, to their credit, the dispatch, backpedals, and is realizing that no, these were they, they were being hit with rocks and beaten, and they fought back. Right. Which is, of course, the manly and correct thing to do. And so. Uh, I've never seen a quote like this before, um, but I'll read it to you. This is uh, this is what the eventually after after three sort of rejiggerings of this in the newspaper, the the, the dispatch completely comes out in their favor in, in the favor of the blacks, and says, uh, meaning he's talking. They're talking about the 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 white men and boys in the neighborhood who are abusing them. He says they have not sense enough to see that they are treating free Negroes in a manner which would not have been permitted towards slaves. Wow. That's a hell of a thing. That's a, that, yeah. Not, I mean, that says a lot about slavery as well. But, uh, uh, you know, here's the newspaper basically saying that, that you can't just get away with that. You, right. You, that, you know, you can hate the new order, but it's, it's, this, is, this is the way it is. You can't, you can't treat them that way. Um, but with that, and citing the health problems up here the Freedmen's Bureau washed their hands of Chimborazo they got out but so so wait so in this riot it just was a giant gunfight or was there like... no, there was there was definitely fire, firearms involved okay um, I mean things get broken and I mean, I mean what are, are we talking about like you know Ferguson style or is this no. just like a gunfire or like it's difficult to tell honestly okay. um, I could show you by just the and knowing what the value of column inch is in the newspaper how how sure. important this this was seen. Uh, so, assuming that we're correct, or the, the, the dispatch, which I mean, they didn't like to have to correct themselves, and they ran this long article that I, that I narrated, you know, describing what happened, uh, how much of that turned out to actually have been correct. Right. Good question. But in in the minds of of the people, you know, uh, like a lot of what we see, you know, that that's not necessarily an important thing. The impression is, you know, this is a violent place. This is a dangerous place. These are violent and dangerous people. Mm -hmm. You see? So, you know, that public perception being, in many cases, reality, uh, is probably what caused, in, in large measure, the Freedmen's Bureau to say, you know, we can't we can't be involved in this. Right. And uh, I, I love the, this letter. It, it's, it's, I'm not saying it's a lie. It, it's probably correct. But, but the way they, they got out, he says, uh, uh, I, I, I respectfully report that as a precautionary measure against the spread amongst the Freedmen's here of smallpox, and other contagions and epidemic diseases now prevalent in the neighboring cities and towns, I have directed the vacation on or before the first proximus of the barracks at Camp Chimborazo. Okay. For your health. Sure. Um, and so with that, you would think that's it. Mm -hmm. Right? The, the freemen are kicked out. It's over, right? Um, no. Uh, one of the things that, <laughs> that emerged from this was, uh, and, and they, they do this very deftly, but they, they said, well, now that we're getting out, we're going to sell the, the barracks. Who are they selling to? Right. The freedmen. Yeah. And so this became their, their first house. Remember, the Confederates abandoned it. it it's, mm -hmm. it's, this is fair game. So now you've got uh, these folks now living in their own houses. The Freedmen's Bureau is, is gone from here, but the, the schools are still in the area. Mm -hmm. um, and at one point, uh, they were using it as like a, uh, kind of like charity wards. Uh, in fact, uh, Elizabeth Van Lu mm -hmm. was granted one of the houses up here at, at Chimborazo. Elizabeth Van Lu, the famous spy. Mm -hmm. I did not expect this one. When I found this, I literally fell out of my chair because everybody knows who she is. Um, and we know she, also she had a house. So yeah. was she so destitute that she actually needed the help of the Freedmen's Bureau? Well, Apparently so. Pretty daggone nice one, too. It's a nice house, but, uh, you know, money talks. You know, how are you going to feed yourself? If, if right. she was really really that tapped out 
uh, it seems like she had to she had to come live up here. Huh. And that was stunning. And so, and I guess that brings up a good point because you're talking about the neighbors and all this. So, the park where we are for today mm-hmm. is not the full site, right? How much bigger? Right? Well, it's most of it. In terms, of, in terms of the in terms of the site of the barracks, the footprint of the of the the hospital and then the barracks is basically Chimborazo Park. Okay, it is. All right. So, so what is around here? You had a couple of houses um, in the vicinity. Um, course i can't recall their names right away but one of them is the lorton family which their house had been used as the headquarters for the hospital during the war but they were still there in fact um one of my just dumb luck finds was um a letter from mrs lorton and signed by all her neighbors uh petitioning the city council that they shouldn't have to pay taxes once this area was annexed in 1867 because they weren't getting any service at all that the you know the the water didn't run out here, the, the streets hadn't been paved, and that they were subjected to the uh, depredations of their property from the nearby Negro camp. Right. They so, and they specifically mentioned that the, they're picking apart this bridge that then connected Chimborazo to Richmond proper. Um, and, and they actually expressed a bit of sympathy for They said the suffering Negroes. Sure. So they, they're basically saying, we're all in the same boat here. We, you know, this is, this is not, not a great place to be. Well, so I guess part of the, uh, the question, so there's smattering of houses. You see, so, you know, so four within, or five. Right, within this riotous idea and all this going on, where the hell are they coming from? Who were like these angry white people? Like, where's... Well, north of here, there were more. There's some in Fulton. Right? Oh, yes, and that and that's going to rear its ugly head in, in, in a couple of months here. Um, they're, they're north of here, they're Churchill. Uh, you know, all basically the city line at the end of the war ran where... Bloody Run is today, um, and this wasn't part of the city, so that became apparently part of the jurisdictional issue, which was the city police couldn't do anything, even if they'd wanted to, and I don't think that they did. So this kind of became this, uh, you know, sure it's a refugee camp, but it's also like a like a squatter village, you know, yeah. just outside of the just outside of the town, and you know, lawlessness, sure, disease, yeah, violence, yeah. You know, what would you expect? Sure. Why, sure. why would that be any different? than any other one of those places that you've ever seen. And, of course, that gave, you know, ammunition to whites in town to, you know, perceive this very, you know, racist. You know, look at what those black, you know, this is just what we told you they were, you know. Um, And, as you suggested, down at Rockets, you've got a large white contingent, primarily um, immigrant. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't say that's that's painting with a bit of a broad brush, but. um, And in July, it's, very difficult to suss out the exact details, but it seems that there was a, a mass riot, again, involving whites from rockets actually charging up the hill. At, uh, we're chasing some of them up up the hill. But then the, the, the African-Americans who were here turned and fired on them. Okay. And at least one man died. And this was in July of 1866. And... I want to know a lot more about this because it, it, this is this is the the awfulness that we find ourselves in in the digital ages. So much has been digitized, but a lot hasn't. And what hasn't been digitized are the 1860, 1866 to eighteen seventy newspapers yet, and I desperately want them because this would stuff this kind of thing would, would be in there. Right. Um, and of course, I can go you know the Library of Virginia and call it the microfilm myself. It might not surprise you to know I have a lot of other research things juggling at the same time right. but that is one of the things i really want to want to suss out uh is finding out more about this riot because it, it generated an awful lot of paperwork uh, with the uh, with the freedmen's bureau and i'm sure it would generate a lot in the court uh, but that's like i say you know the freedmen's bureau is out this is still happening right and this just this goes on uh, and what year was that this is 1866 okay oh, so was this break really fresh oh yeah i mean you know it, it's one of these things that you see and when you do read these newspapers that like the few that are online, um, you know, almost weekly, there's something about Shimbra, something happening at Shimborazo. Uh And as you can well imagine, all the racial attitudes prevalent at the time are going to rear their ugly heads. The Richmond Whig calls it chimpanzee town, you know, this kind of thing. Um, and this, just, this is going on. It's basically just an accepted fact that you've got this refugee camp right outside the city. Um, but as time goes on, you know, this becomes less palatable. And so the uh, the city, seeking to 
kill two birds with one stone. And this is typical 19th century racism. Uh, you got the squatter village, refugee camp, whatever you want to call it. Well, we're going to annex it into the city, which they do in 1872. And then we're going to buy it. And we're going to put in this park. So, of course, when we put in the park, you got to roust everyone else out. Mm-hmm. Which gets rid of the shanty town, gets rid of the squatter village, gets rid of the refugee camp, and we get this beautiful park. Win-win, right? If you're white, sure. But we have this great account of this one guy, and I found this in a St. Louis newspaper in 1900. It's amazing. Thank God for the internet. But it's this old man um, describing his life here at Chimborazo, and he was one of the one of the African Americans who was rousted out by the city. His name was Braxton Harwood. And he described, you know, how he wasn't going to have this. This is my house. You know, okay, fine. You're going to rouse me out? Here's what we're going to do. He and a bunch of other uh, folks got together, dismantled their, probably by that time, uh, run-down hospital ward, and moved it across the street and created this <laughs> other little uh, squatter village over there. And he was still there in 1900 Amazing. when a reporter showed up with a camera and took a picture of it. And it's put on a postcard. It said, the last of Chimborazo Hospital. And he gave his story, which apparently got, uh, you know, on the wire and, and published, in, at least in St. Louis. And uh, he had this really nice, nice way to end it. And, he, you know, he's talking about this reminiscing and, you know, what had happened to him. And, uh, and he said, you know, I just hope to live out my days here in peace. And, you know, it's just one of those one guy, just one guy. Right. Who I have a name. I have a picture of his house. And, I can, you know, I can imagine him. You know, I, do, I, I hope he did. I hope he, you know. That's amazing. I hope he found a peaceful life. I like that. Um, that's a good stop right there. Rocks and Harwood. Yeah. Uh, unless you got, we some, I know we got a couple more minutes. If there are there any other awesome riots or anything? Or well, awesome like, riots. Well, yeah, I mean, like good, great stories like that. I'm still, like, I'm still looking. Uh, the 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 '66 riots seem to have been really the the the, the low point. Yeah. Um, so but it's, it's very clear that even after, remember we talked about you know the, the the you're treating these men worse than you treat slaves. Even after that, that message was not received. So you know you had. Uh, like I say, the, the the folks at Rockets, you know, I, I bet they did resent it. You know, uh, you know, I, I I'm I'm down here with my family, and you're up there with your family, but we're competing for the same job. You know that right. that labor tension is certainly going to be there. That immigrant tension is certainly going to be there. Um, you know, and when when these things would break out, it's not like the military was there to immediately stop it. So this stuff would you know could really get out of hand, as you saw. Sure. And I mean, we're talking we're talking real proper race riots here this is this is big and and i don't think i mean i certainly didn't know about it yeah um i really think that this is one of those things that's sort of fallen through the cracks and when we think about race after the civil war and how does this you know i think the the message that i got in school was that well reconstruction was really bad in mississippi louisiana you know alabama deep south you know because we can all look down our noses at them but we Virginians we did it right sure okay we gotta throw this back on the table guys I mean we gotta we gotta look at this with a clear eye uh, this is this is the kind of violence that you would abhor that you would you, know, you can readily imagine the clan doing or, I mean but we're talking writ large we're talking hundreds of people mm-hmm. and that I mean that's something that we we really have to examine and uh, you know if if anything comes of all this, it's just that, yeah, there it is. The sources are there. We did have important stuff. Shimborazo was a reconstruction site in yeah. addition to being a hospital. And this this kind of racial violence did happen here. Sure. We Virginians were not above it. Absolutely. Because you get a much bigger uh, historical marker outside. I think I think we might we might think about that. To get a scrolling one. Yeah. Scrolling <laughs> time periods. Everything that's important about Shimborazo. Yeah. But... Uh, yeah, I hope I hope there is more recognition for this kind of thing, and and being as it is now the anniversary for, for Reconstruction, you know, let let's let's get real, let's, yeah. let's let's take it seriously. Absolutely, I'm excited about it. Yeah, yeah good. Because again, it's stuff that I don't know anything about. I mean, I, mean, uh, I don't think very many people do. Exactly, so. and the sources are there. There's yeah. really no excuse for us to be lazy historians anymore. Sure. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, good times. Thanks. Yeah. And, uh, Always good to we, uh, good to talk to you. That was it. That was it. Thank you very much, Mike. Thank you very much, Mike Gorman. Thank you very much to the Richmond National Battlefield Parks. Um, thank you for listening. And again, that's that's going to be it for a little while. I do plan to be back in a few months. So uh, until then, 
making a great day.